Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of Behind the Scenes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget Gage. Behind the Scenes by Elizabeth Keckley. Chapter Fifteen, Part Two. Secret History of Mrs. Lincoln's Wardrobe in New York. It is not necessary for me to dwell upon the public history of Mrs. Lincoln's unfortunate venture. The question has been discussed in all the newspapers of the land, and these discussions are so recent that it would be useless to introduce them in these pages, even if I had an inclination to do so. The following, from the New York Evening Express, briefly tells the story. The attraction for ladies, and the curious and speculative of the other sex in the city, just now, is the grand exposition of Lincoln dresses at the office of Mr. Brady on Broadway, a few doors south of Houston Street. The publicity given to the articles on exhibition and for sale has excited the public curiosity, and hundreds of people, principally women with considerable leisure moments at disposal, daily throng the rooms of Mr. Brady, and give himself and his shopwoman more to do than either bargained for, when a lady, with face concealed with a veil, called and arranged for the sale of the superabundant clothing of a distinguished and titled but nameless lady. Twenty-five dresses, folded or tossed about by frequent examinations, lie exposed upon a closed piano and upon a lounge. Shawls, rich and rare, are displayed upon the backs of chairs. But the more exacting obtain a better view, and closer inspection by the lady attendant, throwing them occasionally upon her shoulders, just to oblige, so that their appearance on promenade might be seen and admired. Furs, laces, and jewelry are in a glass case, but the four thousand dollars in gold point outfit is kept in a pasteboard box, and only shown on special request. The feeling of the majority of visitors is adverse to the course Mrs. Lincoln has thought proper to pursue, and the criticisms are as severe as the cavillings are persistent at the quality of some of the dresses. These latter are labeled at Mrs. Lincoln's own estimate, and prices range from twenty-five dollars to seventy-five dollars, about fifty per cent less than cost. Some of them, if not worn long, have been worn much. They are jagged under the arms and at the bottom of the skirt. Stains are on the lining, and other objections present themselves to those who oscillate between the dresses and dollars. Notwithstanding, they have been worn by Madame Lincoln, as a lady who looked from behind a pair of gold spectacles remarked. Other dresses, however, have scarcely been worn. One, perhaps, while Mrs. Lincoln sat for her picture— and from one the basting threads had not yet been removed. The general testimony is that the wearing apparel is high-priced, and some of the examiners say that the cost figures must have been put on by the dressmakers, or, if such was not the case, that gold was two fifty when they were purchased, and is now but one forty, so that a dress for which a hundred and fifty dollars was paid at the rate of high figures cannot be called cheap at half that sum, after it has been worn considerable and perhaps passed out of fashion. The peculiarity of the dresses is that most of them are cut low-necked, a taste which some ladies attribute to Mrs. Lincoln's appreciation of her own bust. On Saturday last an offer was made for all the dresses. The figure named was less than the aggregate estimate placed on them. Mr. Brady, however, having no discretionary power, he declined to close the bargain, but notified Mrs. Lincoln by mail. Of course, as yet, no reply has been received. 
Mrs. L. desires that the auction should be deferred till the 31st of the present month, and efforts made to dispose of the articles at private sale up to that time. A Mrs. C. called on Mr. Brady this morning, and examined minutely each shawl. Before leaving, the lady said that, at the time when there was a hesitancy about the president issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, she sent to Mrs. Lincoln an Ashes of Rose shawl, which was manufactured in China, forwarded to France, and thence to Mrs. C. in New York. The shawl, the lady remarked, was a very handsome one, and should it come into the hands of Mr. Brady to be sold, would like to be made aware of the fact, so as to obtain possession again. Mr. Brady promised to acquaint the Ashes of Rose donor, if the prized article should be among the two trunks of goods now on the way from Chicago. So many erroneous reports were circulated that I made a correct statement to one of the editors of the New York Evening News. The article based upon the memoranda furnished by me appeared in the news of October 12, 1867. I reproduce a portion of it in this connection. Mrs. Lincoln feels sorely aggrieved at many of the harsh criticisms that have been passed upon her for traveling incognito. She claims that she adopted this course from motives of delicacy, desiring to avoid publicity. While here, she spoke to but two former acquaintances, and these two gentlemen whom she met on Broadway. Hundreds passed her who had courted her good graces when she reigned supreme at the White House, but there was no recognition. It was not because she had changed much in personal appearance, but was merely owing to the heavy crepe veil that hid her features from view. She seeks to defend her course while in the city, and with much force, too, adverting to the fact that the Empress of France frequently disposes of her cast-off wardrobe, and publicly, too, without being subjected to any unkind remarks regarding its propriety. She claims the same immunity here as is accorded in Paris to Eugénie, as regards her obscurity while in the city, she says that foreigners of note and position frequently come to our stores, and under assumed names travel from point to point throughout our vast domain, to avoid recognition and the inconveniences resulting from being known, though it even be in the form of honors. For herself she regards quiet preferable to ostentatious show, which would have cost her much indirectly, if not directly, and this she felt herself unable to bear according to the measure of her present state of finances. In a recent letter to her bosom friend, Mrs. Elizabeth Keckley, Mrs. Lincoln pathetically remarks, Elizabeth, if evil come from this, pray for my deliverance, as I did it for the best. This referred to her action in placing her personal effects before the public for sale, and to the harsh remarks that have been made thereon, by some whom she had formerly regarded as her friends. As to the articles which belonged to Mr. Lincoln, they can all be accounted for in a manner satisfactory, even to an overcritical public. During the time Mr. Lincoln was in office, he was the recipient of several canes. After his death, one was given to the Honorable Charles Sumner, another to Fred Douglas, another to the Reverend H. H. Garnet of this city, and another to Mr. William Slade, the present steward of the White House, who, in Mr. Lincoln's lifetime, was his messenger. This gentleman also received some of Mr. Lincoln's apparel, among which was his heavy gray shawl. Several other of the messengers employed about the White House came in for a share of the deceased President's effects. 
The shepherd plaid shawl which Mr. Lincoln wore during the milder weather, and which was rendered somewhat memorable as forming part of his famous disguise, together with the Scotch cap, when he wended his way secretly to the capital to be inaugurated as president, was given to Dr. Abbott of Canada, who had been one of his warmest friends. During the war this gentleman, as a surgeon in the United States Army, was in Washington in charge of a hospital, and thus became acquainted with the head of the nation. His watch, his penknife, his gold pencil, and his glasses are now in possession of his son, Robert. Nearly all else than these few things have passed out of the family, as Mrs. Lincoln did not wish to retain them. But all were freely given away, and not an article was parted with for money. The Rev. Dr. Gurley of Washington was a spiritual adviser of the President and his family. They attended his church. When little Willie died, he officiated at the funeral. He was a most intimate friend of the family, and when Mr. Lincoln lay upon his deathbed, Mr. Gurley was by his side. He, as his clergyman, performed the funeral rites upon the body of the deceased President, when it lay cold in death at the city of Washington. He received the hat worn last by Mr. Lincoln, as we have before stated, and it is still retained by him. The dress that was worn by Mrs. Lincoln on the night of the assassination was presented to Mrs. William Slade. It is a black silk with a little white stripe. Most of the other articles that adorned Mrs. Lincoln on that fatal night became the property of Mrs. Keckley. She has the most of them carefully stowed away, and intends keeping them during her life as mementos of a mournful event. The principal articles among these are the earrings, the bonnet, and the velvet cloak. The writer of this saw the latter on Thursday. It bears most palpable marks of the assassination, being completely bespattered with blood that has dried upon its surface, and which can never be removed. A few words as regard the disposition and habits of Mrs. Lincoln. She is no longer the sprightly body she was when her very presence illumined the White House with gaiety. Now she is sad and sedate, seeking seclusion, and maintaining communication merely with her most intimate personal friends. The most of her time she devotes to instructive reading within the walls of her boudoir. Laying her book aside spasmodically, she places her hand upon her forehead, as if ruminating upon something momentous. Then her hand wanders amid her heavy tresses, while she ponders for but a few seconds. Then, by a sudden start, she approaches her writing-stand, seizes a pen, and indicts a few hasty lines to some trusty friend, upon the troubles that weigh so heavily upon her. Speedily it is sent to the post-office, but hardly has the mail departed from the city before she regrets her hasty letter, and would give much to recall it. But too late it is gone, and probably the secrets it contains are not confidentially kept by the party to whom it was addressed, and soon it furnishes inexhaustible material for gossip-loving people. As some citizens have expressed themselves desirous of aiding Mrs. Lincoln, a subscription-book was opened at the office of her agent, Mr. Brady, number 609 Broadway, this morning. There is no limitation as to the amount which may be given, though there was a proposition that a dollar should be contributed by each person who came forward to inspect the goods. Had each person who handled these articles given this sum, a handsome amount would already have been realized. The colored people are moving in this matter. They intend to take up collections in their churches for the benefit of Mrs. Lincoln. They are enthusiastic, 
and a trifle from every African in this city would, in the aggregate, swell into an immense sum, which would be doubly acceptable to Mrs. Lincoln. It would satisfy her that the black people still have the memory of her deceased husband fresh in their minds. The goods still remain exposed to sale, but it is now announced that they will be sold at a public auction on the 30th of this month, unless they be disposed of before that at private sale. It is stated in the article that the colored people are moving in this matter. The colored people were surprised to hear of Mrs. Lincoln's poverty, and the news of her distress called forth strong sympathy from their warm, generous hearts. Rev. H. H. Garnet of New York City, and Mr. Frederick Douglass of Rochester, New York, proposed to lecture in behalf of the widow of the lamented president, and schemes were on foot to raise a large sum of money by contribution. The colored people recognized Abraham Lincoln as their great friend, and they were anxious to show their kind interest in the welfare of his family, in some way more earnest and substantial than simple words. I wrote Mrs. Lincoln what we proposed to do, and she promptly replied, declining to receive aid from the colored people. I showed her letter to Mr. Garnet and Mr. Douglas, and the whole project was at once abandoned. She afterwards consented to receive contributions from my people, but as the services of Messrs. Douglas, Garnet, and others had been refused when first offered, they declined to take an active part in the scheme, so nothing was ever done. The following letters were written before Mrs. Lincoln declined to receive aid from the colored people. 183 Bleecker Street, New York, October 16, 1867 J. H. Brady, Esquire I have just received your favor, together with the circulars. I will do all that lies in my power, but I fear that will not be as much as you anticipate. I think, however, that a contribution from the colored people of New York will be worth something in a moral point of view, and likely that will be the most that will be accomplished in the undertaking. I am thoroughly with you in the work, although but little may be done. I am truly yours. Henry Highland Garnet. P.S. I think it would be well if you would drop a line to Mr. Frederick Douglass at Rochester, New York. H.H.G. Rochester, October 18, 1867 My dear Mrs. Keckley, you judge me rightly. I am willing to do what I can to place the widow of our martyr president in the affluent position which her relation to that good man and to the country entitles her to. But I doubt the wisdom of getting up a series of lectures for that purpose. That is just the last thing that should be done. Still, if the thing is done, it should be done on a grand scale. The best speakers in the country should be secured for the purpose. You should not place me at the head, nor at the foot of the list, but sandwich me between, for thus out of the way, it would not give color to the idea. I am to speak in new work on Wednesday evening next, and will endeavor to see you on the subject. Of course, if it would not be too much to ask, I would gladly see Mrs. Lincoln, if this could be done in a quiet way without the reporters getting hold of it, and using it in some way to the prejudice of that already much-abused lady. As I shall see you soon, there is less reason to write you at length. I am, dear madam, with highest respect, very truly yours, Frederick Douglass. Pottsville, October twenty ninth, 1867 my dear Mrs. Keckley, you know the drift of my views concerning the subscription for Mrs. Lincoln. Yet I wish to place them more distinctly before you, so that, if you have occasion to refer to me in connection with the matter, you can do so with accuracy and certainty. 
It is due Mrs. Lincoln that she should be indemnified, as far as money can do so, for the loss of her beloved husband. Honor, gratitude, and a manly sympathy, all say yes to this. I am willing to go farther than this, and say that Mrs. Lincoln herself should be the judge of the amount which shall be deemed sufficient, believing that she would not transcend reasonable limits. The obligation resting on the nation at large is great and increasing, but especially does it become colored men to recognize that obligation. It was the hand of Abraham Lincoln that broke the fetters of our enslaved people, and let them out of the house of bondage. When he was slain, our great benefactor fell, and left his wife and children to the care of those for whom he gave up all. Shame on the man or woman, who, under such circumstances, would grudge a few paltry dollars, to smooth the pathway of such a widow. All this and more, I feel and believe. But such is the condition of this question, owing to party feeling, and personal animosities, now mixed up with it, that we are compelled to consider these in the effort we are making to obtain subscriptions. Now, about the meeting in Cooper Institute, I hold that that meeting should only be held in concert with other movements. It is bad generalship to put into the field only a fraction of your army, when you have no means to prevent their being cut to pieces. It is gallant to go forth single-handed, but is it wise? I want to see something more than the spiteful herald behind me when I step forward in this cause at the Cooper Institute. Let Mr. Brady out with his circulars, with his list of commanding names. Let the herald and tribune give a united blast upon their bugles. Let the city be placarded, and the doors of Cooper Institute be flung wide open, and the people, without regard to party, come up to the discharge of this national duty. Don't let the cause be made ridiculous by failure at the outset. Mr. Garnet and I could bear any mortification of this kind, but the cause could not. And our cause must not be damaged by any such generalship, which would place us in the van, unsupported. I shall be at home by Saturday. Please write me, and let me know how matters are proceeding. Show this letter to Messrs. Brady and Garnet. I am, dear madam, very truly yours, Frederick Douglass. Rochester, October thirtieth, 1867 My dear Mrs. Keckley, it is just possible that I may not take New York in my route homeward. In that case, please write me directly at Rochester, and let me know how fully the subscription business is proceeding. The meeting here last night was a grand success. I speak again this evening, and perhaps at Reading tomorrow evening. My kind regards and all who think of me at twenty-one, including Mrs. Lawrence. Very truly yours, Frederick Douglass. Rochester, November tenth, 1867 My dear Mrs. Keckley, I very easily read your handwriting. With practice, you will not only write legibly, but elegantly. So no more apologies for bad writing. Penmanship has always been one of my own deficiencies, and I know how to sympathize with you. I am just home, and find your letter awaiting me. You should have received an earlier answer, but for this absence. I am sorry it will be impossible for me to see you before I go to Washington. I am leaving home this week for Ohio, and shall go from Ohio to Washington. I shall be in New York a day or two after my visit to Washington, and will see you there. Any public demonstration in which it will be desirable for me to take part ought to come off the last of this month, or the first of next. I thank you sincerely for the note containing a published letter of dear Mrs. Lincoln. Both letters do credit to the excellent lady. 
I prize her beautiful letter to me very highly. It is the letter of a refined and spirited lady. Let the world say what it will of her. I would write her a word of acknowledgment, but for fear to burden her with correspondence. I am glad that Mr. Garnet and yourself saw Mr. Greeley, and that he takes the right view of the matter. But we want more than right views, and delay is death to the movement. What you now want is action and cooperation. If Mr. Brady does not for any reason find himself able to move the machinery, somebody else should be found to take his place. He made a good impression on me when I saw him, but I have not seen the promised simultaneous movement of which we spoke when together. This whole thing should be in the hands of some recognized solid man in New York. No man would be better than Mr. Greeley. No man in the state is more laughed at, and yet no man is more respected and trusted. A dollar placed in his hands would be as safe for the purpose as in a burglar-proof safe. And what is better still, everybody believes this. This testimonial must be more than a Negro testimonial. It is a great national duty. Mr. Lincoln did everything for the black man. But he did it not for the black man's sake, but for the nation's sake. His life was given for the nation. But for being president, Mr. Lincoln would have been alive, and Mrs. Lincoln would have been a wife, and not a widow as now. Do all you can, dear Mrs. Keckley. Nobody can do more than you in removing the mountains of prejudice towards that good lady, and opening the way of success in the plan. I am, dear madam, very truly yours, Frederick Douglass. Many persons called at 609 Broadway to examine Mrs. Lincoln's wardrobe, but as curiosity prompted each visit, but few articles were sold. Mr.s Brady and Keyes were not very energetic, and, as will be seen by the letters of Mrs. Lincoln, published in the appendix, that lady ultimately lost all confidence in them. It was proposed to send circulars, stating Mrs. Lincoln's wants, and appealing to the generosity of the people for aid, broadcast over the country. But the scheme failed. Messrs. Brady and Keyes were unable to obtain the names of prominent men, whom the people had confidence in, for the circular, to give character and responsibility to the movement. So the whole thing was abandoned. With the Reverend Mr. Garnet, I called on Mr. Greeley at the office of the Tribune in connection with this scheme. Mr. Greeley received us kindly, and listened patiently to our proposals, then said, I shall take pleasure in rendering you what assistance I can, but the movement must be engineered by responsible parties. Messrs. Brady and Keyes are not the men to be at the head of it. Nobody knows who they are or what they are. Place the matter in the hands of those that the people know, and have some confidence in, and then there will be a chance for success. We thanked Mr. Greeley for his advice, for we believed it to be good advice, and bowed ourselves out of his room. When Messrs. Brady and Keyes were informed of the result of our interview, they became very much excited, and denounced Mr. Greeley as an old fool. This put an end to the circular movement. The enterprise was nipped in the bud, and with the bud withered Mrs. Lincoln's last hope for success. A portion of the wardrobe was then taken to Providence, to be exhibited, but without her consent. Mr. Brady remarked that the exhibition would bring in money, and as money must be raised, this was the last resort. He was of the impression that Mrs. Lincoln would approve of any movement. So it ended in success. This, at least, is a charitable view to take of the subject. 
Had the exhibition succeeded in Providence, it is my opinion that the agents of Brady and Keyes would now be traveling over the country, exposing Mrs. Lincoln's wardrobe to the view of the curious, at so much per head. As is well known, the city authorities refused to allow the exhibition to take place in Providence. Therefore Mr. Brady returned to New York with the goods, and the traveling show scheme, like the circular scheme, was abandoned. Weeks lengthened into months, and at Mrs. Lincoln's urgent request I remained in New York, to look after her interests. When she left the city I engaged quiet lodgings in a private family, where I remained about two months, when I moved to 14 Carroll Place, and became one of the regular boarders of the house. Mrs. Lincoln's venture proved so disastrous that she was unable to reward me for my services, and I was compelled to take in sewing to pay for my daily bread. My New York expedition has made me richer in experience, but poorer in purse. During the entire winter I have worked early and late, and practiced the closest of economy. Mrs. Lincoln's business demanded much of my time, and it was a constant source of trouble to me. When Mrs. L. left for the West I expected to be able to return to Washington in one week from the day, but unforeseen difficulties arose, and I have been detained in the city for several months. As I am writing the concluding pages of this book, I have succeeded in closing up Mrs. Lincoln's imprudent business arrangement at 609 Broadway. The firm of Brady and Keyes is dissolved, and Mr. Keyes has adjusted the account. The story is told in a few words. On the 4th of March, I received the following invoice from Mr. Keyes. March 4th, 68. Invoice of articles sent to Mrs. A. Lincoln. One trunk... One lace dress, one lace dress flounced, five lace shawls, three camel hair shawls, one lace parasol cover, one lace handkerchief, one sable boa, one white boa, one set furs, two paisley shawls, two gold bracelets, sixteen dresses, two opera cloaks, one purple shawl, one feather cape, twenty-eight yards silk. Articles sold, one diamond ring, three small rings, one set furs, one camel hair shawl, one red shawl, two dresses, one child's shawl, one lace chantilly shawl. The charges of the firm amounted to $800. Mrs. Lincoln sent me a check for this amount. I handed this check to Mr. Keyes, and he gave me the following receipt. Received, New York, March 4, 1868, of Mrs. Abraham Lincoln, $820 by draft on American National Bank, New York. S.C. Keys. I packed the articles invoiced, and expressed the trunks to Mrs. Lincoln at Chicago. I then demanded, and received a receipt worded as follows. Received, New York, March 4, 1868 of Mrs. Abraham Lincoln, $820 in full of all demands of every kind, up to date. S.C. Keys. This closed up the business, and with it I closed the imperfect story of my somewhat romantic life. I have experienced many ups and downs, but still am stout of heart. The labor of a lifetime has brought me nothing in a pecuniary way. I have worked hard, but fortune, fickle dame, has not smiled upon me. If poverty did not weigh me down as it does, I would not now be toiling by day with my needle and writing by night, 
in the plain little room on the fourth floor of number fourteen Carroll Place. And yet I have learned to love the garret-like room. Here, with Mrs. Amelia Lancaster as my only companion, I have spent many pleasant hours, as well as sad ones, and every chair looks like an old friend. In memory I have travelled through the shadows and the sunshine of the past, and the bare walls are associated with the visions that have come to me from the long ago. As I love the children of memory, so I love every article in this room, for each has become a part of memory itself. Though poor in worldly goods, I am rich in friendships, and friends are a recompense for all the woes of the darkest pages of life. For sweet friendship's sake, I can bear more burdens than I have borne. The letters appended from Mrs. Lincoln to myself throw a flood of light upon the history of the old clothes speculation in New York. End of chapter 15